there are no rules. Like send a portfolio, send a cover letter, send 5,000 references. Like I think that age doesn't matter because a lot of people say to me like, oh, you've done so much at a young age. I was like, well, even if I was 50, it doesn't matter. Like nothing actually matters. I think the things that stop people from doing things like that are these made up rules that they have in their head that, you know, society or, you know, whatever has brought into them that they aren't willing to break. When you should just be putting yourself out there and just, if you want something, just like go and get it. That was Australian chef Sophie Shalero, and you're listening to the Leadership, Equity, and Wellness pod by Ricky Roy. Sophie is 21 years old and has been working in the hospitality industry since age 14. She started at McDonald's and made her way to some of the top restaurants in the world, including three Michelin star restaurant Azurmendi in Spain, three Michelin star restaurant The Fat Duck in the UK, and two Michelin star restaurant, Gagan. I talked to Sophie about wellness in Michelin starred kitchens and what we can do to communicate more compassionately in our workplaces. Our recording starts now. Welcome, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am so excited. So I'd love for the audience to know more about your background and what really brought you into the world that you're in now professionally. Yeah. Um, So my name is Sophie Shalira. (laughs) Um, I am 21 years old and I am a chef. Um, I started cooking when I was... 15 is when I started my apprenticeship Um, in Australia. That is a three-year apprenticeship. And I was able to start at 15 because I did school part-time and my training part-time. But then instead of going to college, I um, left school. So I left school when I was 16 and then went just full-time work, smashed out my apprenticeship. And yeah, so I was able to be qualified by the time I was 17, nearly 18. Um, Yeah, I've worked in a lot of restaurants. I'm from Canberra, Australia. So I've worked in a lot of restaurants um, in Canberra, but I also have traveled uh, to Spain, um, to England. Um, I was in Singapore briefly where I met you. Um, and where I was fortunate enough to be able to work with some of the world's best chefs. Um, and yeah, that's the overview. (laughs) I love that. Well, you mentioned being in Spain and in Singapore, and I'd love to know more about when and how you really felt like you were making strides working in these different countries and cultures. When did it really hit you? How did it feel? different what did it feel like and I'd love to know just more about that yeah well I remember um when I got my um in my internship in Europe I was so over the moon because my it was such a rash not planned out decision in any way shape or form like when I started cooking I always knew like, I want to go to Europe and I want to, um, you know, work for like all these amazing chefs. Like it was always a thing, but I had never actually taken the time to like plan it out to do it. So one day um, I was at the job I was, the, the job I was at currently that, that, that I left to go to Europe. I was just like not having a particularly good time mentally and you know I had bounced around from a lot of jobs because you know I either didn't get along with people or it wasn't the work I wanted to do and I think at that age as well like I was 18 and I was very like oh my god like 
what work do I even want to do? Like what's life, what's decisions, what's everything? So I was yeah. just very confused. Mm -hmm. And my bright brain thought, well, no time like the present to ship yourself off to Europe. Um, so I just bought a ticket, um, like a round ticket, so like from Europe and back. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a deal that I didn't actually have to give them a location. Like I could give, I could give them a location whenever I wanted. Wow. I was like, yeah, sick. Cause I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think it was four weeks until I was about to leave for Europe and I hadn't gotten a job. I hadn't gotten a location. So I was like freaking out a bit and I had applied to all the 100 best restaurants in the world. Mm -hmm. and I sent them all an email and I think about 30 of them just like didn't respond to me at all. I was like, fair enough. <laughs> no experience. <laughs> That's fair. Um, the rest of them um, said no. And I was like, that's great, fair enough. Um, but there was one restaurant on the 100 best list, number 14. And this literally happened a week and a half before I was supposed to leave to Europe. Wow. Um, I was literally up until like three in the morning because I was stressed. I was mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I'm going to Europe. I have no plan of freaking out. And they, and I got an email at 3 a.m., um, my time saying we'd like to accept you into Azamendi. Um, congratulations, rah, 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 rah. And I was like, holy shit. So I guess I'm going to Spain. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I have full goosebumps all over my body. I'd love <laughs> to know a little bit more about the emails you sent and yeah. the way in which you presented yourself or communicated your story again as a 18 year old you you know had this foresight to even google the list to search up the list to know about the 100 best restaurants and I'd love to learn more about just how you pitched yourself I find I do the same thing every single time I anytime I'm trying to pitch myself to somebody to like especially when it's somebody that you know, you don't know, you're in a different country, like, and it's kind of a job that you aren't actually qualified for. <laughs> um, I pitch myself as just like the most enthusiastic person you will ever meet in your entire existence. Like I sent them a portfolio of like photos of food I had made with like descriptions and rah, rah, rah. And I made sure that my resume had absolutely everything in the world I had done on it. So I did a lot of volunteer work, um, so I made sure that was on there. I feel like nothing can hurt. Um, I did, you know, a lot of cooking competitions and, you know, I, I threw them on. I was just like absolutely everything. I got as many references as I could. And I feel like that's just one part. But then the cover letter that you send to people is also so important because I literally just wrote like a chapter on like you know this is how I know who you are this is why I love the hundred best this is where I see myself in five years um you know I'm the hardest working person in the entire world please just like give me a chance you won't regret it like pretty much begging <laughs> um and yeah I feel like a lot of people don't I feel like that's how like I've been fortunate enough to get these opportunities because I literally beg for them and yeah. I Feel like that's really important to do yeah. especially when you're young and you don't have all the experience in the world to have behind you mm -hmm. I love that and I think what really came through in what you just shared is just the sincerity that underscores the enthusiasm I think that enthusiasm has to come from this really sincere and confident place where you can stand behind the fact that even though you don't know a lot of the things that you'll learn from this experience, you are ready and you have that potential and it is fully up to each person and how they choose to write their own story in communicating that potential because no one yeah. else can really do that for you. Yeah. That is fully up to 
the person writing the cover letter. And then the other thing that really stuck out to me that I hope the audience picks up on is that portfolio. And personally, in my industry, I have heard that portfolios or websites aren't as common for the folks in my niche or area, but that didn't really stop me from making one because I had to have control on how I told my story and I would be the only one who would have that control because literally no one else could pitch myself like I could pitch myself. And so if this option to make the portfolio to share your pictures, if that exists, I think the way my brain worked and works is like saying, why not? And so I absolutely love the fact that you shared that because there is that effort and sincerity that connects the gap between you sending a hundred emails and getting that one yes from this very rare opportunity. And when people say, I think, oh, this doesn't happen for everyone, I think it's because they're missing those ingredients. They're missing how to bridge that gap with the effort and that sincerity. What do you think? I could, I could not agree more. I've had so many people say to me, like, oh my God, you must have worked so hard for that. Like, you know, that's just so amazing that like that happened for you. Like really like putting me on a pedestal of like, I've just done the best thing in the world. And, you know, I was proud of it, like sure. But I literally like, like there are no rules. Like if, if somebody does not, if I want something, (laughs) I will send 3000 emails until somebody tells me that I'm stalking them and to leave them alone. Like there are no rules, like send a portfolio, send a cover letter, send 5000 references. Like, I think that age doesn't matter. Cause a lot of people say to me like, Oh, you've done so much at a young age. I was like, well, even if I was 50, it doesn't matter. Like, nothing actually matters I think the things that stop people from doing things like that are these made-up rules that they have in their head that you know society or you know whatever has brought into them that they aren't willing to break when you should just be putting yourself out there and just if you want something just like go and get it kind of thing Absolutely. And knowing that the worst thing that could happen was the no and you got several no's, but you just had to wait for that one yes. one yes. And I think so much about my story and how in my industry, there are these certain rules that I thought were undisputable. So things such as your grade point average, the school you went to, what sort of research experiences you had. And what's so interesting is I think if you allow yourself to rethink those rules to say, what can I, how can I color out of the lines a little bit or a lot? I think it allows us to think more clearly. And what I'm curious to learn more about is whether you had any practices, things that you used to cope or to persevere during those four weeks that you mentioned when the clock was ticking and you had to figure out where you were going, what you were going to do, especially with those bigger questions of I'm young, what is life that you mentioned? What did you use in the back end to sort of persevere through that time and those critical days before that yes came when you didn't know whether it was coming or not? I think a lot of it was just being in the unknown and being 100% okay with that. Like, I I just thought at the end of the day, I've bought a ticket to Europe. So like, that's done. (laughs) um if I don't get a job 
then I'm just going to have to fly somewhere. Um, I was actually thinking Paris because I was like, that would be fun. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to have to go into restaurants personally and ask for a job. And whether that's as um, a kitchen hand or, you know, I'll cut vegetables, I'll cut carrots all day. Um, I was just very prepared to just not get a job, pick a spot and then do whatever it took to get a job in that spot. And if that didn't work out, then you just go on a holiday and I'm just in Europe and I'll stay at a nice hotel for a bit and I'll have a holiday. Like I think being comfortable in everything completely failing. Yes. Is um, something that is really important in order to take the necessary steps to succeed in a career or in a situation or in anything really. Right. Absolutely. And to not let that fear paralyze you, but to move through that with the confidence that you not only have the backup plan, but also the backup plan to the backup plan. And if truly everything goes to shit, you're still okay with it because, you know, probably if we're listening to this or creating this, then we have a few privileges like electricity, a phone, and that we will be okay and that we'll figure out how to regroup. Well, that's exactly it. You can't um, ignore the privilege you have. Like, yes, if everything, you know, at the end of the day, I think I could have just like thrown in the towel and sold the ticket. Mm-hmm. I would have lost a lot of money. But, you know, at the end of the day, like that wouldn't have mattered. If I wanted to throw in the towel and get rid of the ticket and lose the money, that, that's okay in the situation I was in. Right. Um, and you also have the people around you. Like, you know, if something really, really bad happened, I had my mum. Mm-hmm. I had my sister. I had my you know my friends um so I think it's also a reminder that you know you do need to recognize the privilege around you when making really intense and um rash decisions because a lot of people I do see can't make those rash decisions because you know their life will probably like something bad will happen if it doesn't work out and they don't, and a lot of people don't have the safety net around them to go and make really crazy decisions and to just leave the country and, you know, feel comfortable in failure. A lot of people don't have that. So I'm really lucky that I was able to do that. Um, Right. At the same time, recognize that a lot of people can't. Absolutely. Yeah. And I see this story or this message with an asterisk of get introspective about your privilege. So if you are privileged in the spectrum, recognize what is paralyzing you versus what really is a concern that is valid where there isn't a safety net. And I think this discussion surrounding that is so crucial because for some listeners there truly may not be a safety net and so leaning into the unknown making the backup plans has to again be very realistic and I think everyone can take a part of this story for it to apply to them so I'm so grateful that you shared that (laughs) I'd love to jump into your experience then in Spain and the nature of the communication in the kitchens and what you saw through that experience. And I'd love to chat about the differences and similarities between your experiences in Australia, in Spain, England, and then Singapore. And we can do this however way you want, but (laughs) um, I'd love to talk about yeah how folks spoke to each other it's really interesting because like I'm going to tell this story 
And that first part of the story where like taking yourself out of the comfort zone and, you know, getting something that you've always wanted until you have it and doing whatever it takes to get it is one thing that I learned and that I'll always have with me and I will carry with me. But I can't say that everything else I learned after that was as positive. But, you know, in saying that, like, I'm 100% grateful for all the experiences I've had and I would not change it for the world because even if, you know, I learned negative things, I still learned things that I don't like. And in Spain was really, really interesting. So when I got that position, um, I was very naive. I was like, well, I'm going to Spain. And like, I didn't speak any Spanish at all. So I was like, oh, well, better start learning some Spanish. But like, I'm literally going to be there in like a week and a half. So I don't think I could learn a lot of Spanish in a week and a half. But I figured I was like, well, if they're taking people from Australia, like surely they speak English in the kitchen. Otherwise, like, because they didn't even ask me if I spoke Spanish. Like, right. Mm-hmm. Surely that would just be a thing. Right. Um, and then I got to Spain and I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, it was one thing like planning it, but now I'm here and I'm freaking out. And I got a taxi to the restaurant, which was um, a little bit outside of Bilbao. So it was about a 35 minute taxi drive from Bilbao, but um, the main city. And it was this gorgeous, like, picturesque, like, it was insane. It was a work of art, this restaurant. It was made of glass and it was so big and it was built around, like, trees. So there were trees in the restaurant and all of this, like, nature that it was built around and then, like, more was grown inside. Like, it it was like having a fine dining meal in a forest. Wow. And I kind of just got there. And I like walked in and I was like, I've made it. Like, this is it. Like, this is, I'm done. I'm like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. This is incredible. Like, I'm done. And then um, they took me to where, because they were supplying my accommodation. Um, So they took me to like the basement of the restaurant where there were three rooms with bunk beds and like two shared bathrooms. Cause I think there were like 25 of us that got accepted um, and all over the world. So like there was literally someone from Korea, America, um, you know, me from Australia, England, people from everywhere all over the world. Um, and which was actually really interesting because no two people were from the same place. <laughs> wow that's amazing yeah which made yeah. it very fun yeah um and I was just kind of like oh my god I'm literally sleeping in the same room as eight different strangers uh that I don't know that I've never met um guys and girls we're sharing a bathroom I'm terrified what if we hate each other this is like really scary I'm freaking yeah. out yeah yeah um so I called my mom crying and I was like, mom, I think I've made a mistake. I was like, I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. Like, well, oh my she, gosh. she was like, you're there. Just give it a go. You don't, nobody said you have to stay there, but you have to try. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I give it a go. And it was definitely difficult to like start. The start was really hard, like getting settled. But like then I made friends and, you know, we went to bars and it was just like fun. And then, and then it just turned into like a sleepover with your friends in one, in one big room. Um, but then at 8 a.m. sharp, um, the chefs would like come and wake you up and you had to be outside, like your uniform had to be pristine. So like chef's jacket, apron, chef's hat, hair slicked back, um the women the girls had to wear this like minimal amounts of makeup like just so they were had a presentable face like not tired because the customers would come into the kitchen um and we would go upstairs and like start the day with a ton of prep um and 
I had this one chef who was in charge of training me and she decided that she didn't want to talk to me in English. So I was kind of like, okay, like that's fine. Because again, I was also like, I don't want to be that brat that's like comes to another country and expects them to speak my language. Yeah. I was like, I was like, okay, well, I'm in Spain. If you feel the need to speak Spanish to me, well, I don't want to be rude about that. Mm-hmm. So she was talking to me in Spanish the whole time and I did not understand a single word she said. So I kind of looked at her with like a real blank face and she'd like do the actions for me and then I'd be like, oh, okay. So then after about like three or four weeks, everything she said in Spanish, I could understand. Wow. Because I could just understand those phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... It was just kind of the whole vibe of the kitchen that really didn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it was a really hostile place. Mm. It was a very competitive place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though like I did make friends, of course, and like I still have those friends, like I love them. And like, that was a really great experience, but you know, you weren't allowed to speak in the kitchen. So it was dead silent all the time. Um, You pretty much weren't allowed to do anything. You just had to get given your job, do your job, which was the same every day. Um, And that was it. And communication wise was really interesting because there was a clear, everybody who was Spanish, so all the chefs that worked there, there were, there were five chefs that were full-time and constant there. They all spoke Spanish and they were just like above everybody else who you had to listen to. And I was like, yeah, like, fair enough. But it was just very clear that like, and don't forget, like, like we're working for free. Oh, that yes. was that was not mentioned okay that adds <laughs> a lot of context so yeah. in so yeah so in spain i was working for fr- they gave me accommodation and food so not really free right but i wasn't getting paid mm. so see. you were really being worked to the bone and you were being worked to get everything out of you possible and you know we weren't there for the money though the money isn't what got me it was the experience and it was amazing but you know no speaking in the kitchen it was hostile it was rude at times you know there was bullying at times there was you know just so much that happened that made me question why would I want to work I understand that you know it's got three Michelin stars 14th best restaurant in the world whatever but why would I want to work at a restaurant that's so high up but literally makes me feel like crap yeah and makes me kind of not want to be a chef makes me feel lazy makes me feel not good Mm -hmm. so I was like do I it really made me think do I really want to aim for the top 100 restaurants in the world Mm -hmm. or do I want to aim to enjoy my work yeah do you think that you questioned whether those two were mutually exclusive where you would have to have one or the other or were the wheels spinning in your head on trying to see if there were other places just different work environments like what was your thought process like then I definitely held out hope I was like you know maybe there are other places that are different you know rah 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 Um, which is when I actually went to a restaurant in England because I was like, you know, like, let's just give it a go. Um, And I went there and it was just kind of the same thing. It was just, I feel like it's the corporate world of cooking. Like, it's just so planned and it's not fun and there's no laughter and there's no personality and there's no you know, which is interesting because the food that these restaurants cook is so different and so right. out there. And it's to facilitate 
laughter and bonding and these beautiful sensory experiences um yeah yeah and it's also though like I think and I always think it's like the customers in a restaurant are like I like just my like one of my favorite things like I love talking to customers and I love you know being able to joke and being able to have them enjoy their night because I think every person that goes to a restaurant they don't want the chef to like walk around them and act like you know oh I can't look at you I can't talk at you I have to do my job I can't smile I have to like you know be completely professional when I've had some of the best experiences joking with customers asking them about their day and like getting to know them and it also makes the cooking for them so much more personal and I think that that is what I love so that's why you know going to Spain going to England and even the same thing happened in Singapore where I was just like this is not personal this is a show this is a show you said yeah yeah this is is a show that Mm -hmm. we're putting on which the customers are enjoying Mm -hmm. and you know the chefs some of them do enjoy but even the chefs I worked with in Spain in um England in Singapore like so many and, and this was another thing I wasn't the only person that was a little bit unhappy Mm-hmm. everybody was everybody thought the same thing right. and I was just like I don't understand how you know I've only been here for three months but how everybody has been doing this for like two years mm-hmm. and is able to come to work every day with the same complaints and you know hate it like people would say to me like I hate my job wow but to it. keep spinning on that wheel and to not be able to get off the wheel because of the prestige yeah. that it brings. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like me. I was like, it's so prestigious. It's so like, it's, it's as high as you can go. Like, you know, being head chef at one of the best restaurants in the world or owning one of the best restaurants in the world. But now, after my experiences, I just genuinely like when I picture uh, my future restaurant and my career, I picture something small, you know, maybe we get awards, maybe we don't, but I know the customers that walk in every day. I have meaningful conversations with customers, you know, my staff respect their workplace and they enjoy going there every day because chefs are at work like 90% of the time. Like we work ridiculous hours, so you can't hate it and a space where they feel confident and comfortable enough to share ideas and, you know, listen to each other and make friends and laugh and joke and, you know, be 100% themselves without judgment. Right. So in this quest for shifting this culture and creating this new way Have you seen examples of this being done in places? Do you have any models through the spaces that you've been in, through the spaces that you've heard of, through the people you've met and interacted with? Are there people that have upheld these values of laughter and community? Or do you feel like you truly have to, again, lean into the unknown in crafting it and I asked this again to understand why these spaces have been constructed in this way how it benefits them and how this new way can be championed and celebrated on these tv shows and you know cooking conversations yeah I think, you know, and I'm really about to call it out here. <laughs> the Michelin star's about to get called out. <laughs> um, I think for starters, it's just all a lie. It's just like when these, 
when chefs are being interviewed and I don't I don't think it's just chefs I think this can go for a lot of people but be honest like you know chefs are are sitting there and talking about how you know oh I believe in equality for example I believe in equality and you know paying my staff well and treating my workplace well and you know all this stuff but then actually go there and talk to the employees and you will hear a completely different story because that person may believe in that and that's great but they have three other people under them implementing things that don't work it's a whole chain right and it's like so the person at the top might believe it but the three people under her or him don't implement it themselves right and I think that people just need to be a bit more honest about it like Gordon Ramsay for example the way he's made his money and to start he's a great chef he's one of the greatest chefs in the entire world his skills everything impeccable impeccable but the way he's made money off making a show about screaming at people in kitchens and treating them like shit and swearing at them and you know making them feel crap for making a mistake or not knowing something is what happens in real life right and And he's making money off it right and the fact that money can be made off of it and that you can be this celebrated person gives other people in all of these other spaces the ability and the ticket to be able to do that themselves and there are people who watch the shows and they feel like they're allowed to then treat their employees no matter what industry they're in like that as well it's this sort of behavior that is celebrated even though it's unkind exactly it's a it's that's exactly it I think that it's too celebrated because even like you know the 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 greats you know Marco Pierre White came out on um social media and said a really really sexist thing he said it, it, it was a very long time ago but he said I don't like to hire um female chefs because they don't have the same strength as male chefs And I think, you know, sexism in an industry is also a bit looked over because of people like him that say things like that. And if everybody just goes, oh, well, it's Marco Pierre White. He's one of the best chefs in the world. It's too celebrated. Right. And nobody actually just goes, actually, no, that's ridiculous like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard especially nobody that um you know is at the same level as him nobody calls you know you got to call each other out you've got to be 100% open and honest Mm -hmm. and I think the one example I did get of that was Dominique Crenn I was at the 50 best talks in uh 2000 oh my god I don't remember it was so long ago 2018 nope 2016 Mm -hmm. yeah and a man she was the only female chef on stage and a man literally got up and said how do you navigate having children around Mm. your crew and I was like like she was getting all the kid questions all the you know, how, how, how do you think you're going to be a good mum if you're working so many hours? And no, the male chefs weren't getting anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. And Dominique Prince stood up and said, um, you know, stood up for herself and said, it's none of your business. I've created a successful restaurant and a successful family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not giving my male chefs any of those questions, so why are you giving it to me? Right. But none of the male chefs around her I'm not saying stand up for women. We definitely don't need that. But none of the male chefs around her said she's absolutely right. 
Yeah, I hear you. And, you know, come to think of it, it could have been and would have been nice if they had stood up for her too. And yeah, I think that's really interesting because not only did she have the responsibility to call the reporter or the folks in the audience out, but it also is interesting that the other folks on the panel didn't have any responsibility to even think it through. Like the discussion that we're having, it's so interesting because oftentimes it's on the folks who are at the end of these questions to handle it, navigate it, have the burden of the question, do the mental gymnastics, go through all the hoops. And it's interesting that the other half leaves themselves out of the conversation, that they have no responsibility and on a bad day get to say these really demeaning remarks. And I think the reality of that is so interesting to me. Have you seen this, say, for example, after she stood up for yourself, have you seen discourse about this, like op-eds or any conversations that were being had? Do, Do you see people recognizing this or especially the new chefs coming up that you interact with? Do you see them being aware of this, wanting to push for a different way? I think yes it's it's really difficult because I also think there's a certain type of attitude that's you know I was treated this way so I want them to know how I felt wow yeah um and you know this isn't saying though like that I'm a saint you know I get angry I I have to sometimes like walk away from a situation because I'm about to like explode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like, like I, like I'm definitely not a saint, but I think that a lot of people do want to change, but, you know, I remember when, so this is just an example of, you know, the people that are trying, I went to, um, an event um, in Canberra for um, chefs for like the for mental health in chefs because it is it is very bad it is an issue Um, you know a lot of chefs have killed themselves Um, a lot of chefs are depressed a lot of chefs suffer from extreme anxiety Um, and it is a very stressful job so no wonder Um, and I went to the event And after this amazing speech and all this, you know, good stuff that came from it, at the end of it, someone raised their hand up and said, so how do you intend on changing the industry to help these chefs? And she goes, it's not the industry that needs to be changed. It's the industry we all love. It's the help that these chefs can get, which we need to make more accessible. And I was just kind of like, but don't you think, sure, make help more accessible. I think we need to do that in pretty much every aspect of life ever. Right. But shouldn't we be stopping something at the cause? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's systemic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's systemic. It's not, they, like, they just need access to help. Yeah. It, well, what's causing them to have such high stress levels, you know, to feel this way? Mm-hmm. And how can we prevent that from happening before they have to go and seek professional help? Yeah. And in drawing a lot of parallels to what you're sharing with my experiences in school and then hearing stories of people who've since graduated are and are in these or have been in these workplaces, especially during the pandemic, it's, and, and even thinking about this podcast, it's not enough to have these quick tips because you can't 
really quick tip your way out of these major systemic issues if the system itself is crushing you. And it's not about, for example, folks teaching people how to use their insurance to find a therapist, even though that is really helpful. It's about understanding why and what is pushing them into seeking help, especially if it's not just out of them wanting to better themselves. If it's really stemming from these workplaces, which I hear you saying it is, and I hear so many of my peers, again, being crushed by these workspaces, being crushed by academia, and just these really interesting and old systems of, oh, we went through it the hard, shitty way. So you have to go through the hard, shitty way. Um, Exactly. And and that's how you make a strong person. Right. Which I think is just not true. Like, you know, the old fashioned way of being like, you scream at them, you yell at them, tough love. Like that's how Mm -hmm. you make a strong person. Yeah. Which is just not true. Yeah. And I think that that kind of takes me to like my next point of I've been seeing on um, social media, me and my roommate had a, had a joke about this, um, how everybody was saying run away from your workplace when they say the words we're like a family. Yeah. And I just found that so interesting because I, you know, genuinely have thought of workplaces as family Mm -hmm. and you know my mom even um will say like oh but like you guys are family and like I think it's especially true in hospitality because you know we are together like I'll work a 10 a.m to 10 p.m shift and then after that though we all have dinner together right we all talk about our personal lives we're Mm -hmm. all very close we all know everything about each other we've all seen each other cry We've all seen each other angry. We've Mm -hmm. all seen each other in every state. Mm -hmm. And I think that does make a family. Yeah. But then there's also this really interesting um, component of, yeah, but everybody's replaceable. Mm, Which is not true in a family. Which is not true in a family. And see, this is what I find so frustrating because to me, no, everybody is not replaceable. And, and then, you know, I've had conversations about this with so many people and they'll go, yeah, but you've got to understand it from a business point of view or from, a, from this point of view or this point of view. But I'm like, okay, so in my mind, I'm owning my own business, whatever. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I really still don't think everybody is replaceable. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, if somebody walks out tomorrow, you can get a new chef who can do the job. Mm-hmm. But you don't have their personality. Yeah. You don't have the things they know about your other team members. Mm-hmm. You don't have the personal things they bring to a team. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're such a family and you're so connected and personal and so on, then how is everybody replaceable? Right. And I just have a really, I just have a really massive issue with that. Because then I'm like, that in itself causes mental health issues. Like, oh, these people are my family, but I can be kicked out on the road in a day and never see them again. Like, that's stressful. (laughs) That is stressful. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'd love to jump into some of the rapid fire questions with you. And if it's all right with you, I'd love to know, what does wellness mean to you? Wellness to me. I think wellness is very mental. I think when I think of wellness, I think of mental wellness. I think of taking a walk on a good day with fresh air on your own, listening to a good podcast. Mm -hmm. I think of 
exercising to release endorphins to make yourself feel better um you know having something that nourishes your body mm-hmm. um but also you know wellness is hanging out with your best friends and cooking a meal for your family and having conversations that nourish you as well mm-hmm. I think that's me as wellness I love that what does effective leadership mean to you Someone who can effective leadership. I think it's people who are able to command respect and to be respected um, in order to get the job done and get it done very well. Mm -hmm. Also are really capable of caring and have the ability to make you feel heard as an employee or as a person or as, you know, as anything, a leader who makes someone feel heard and heard, not listened to. Mm -hmm. That's a (laughs) big difference. Yeah. It's a big difference. I think is effective leadership is to, Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your morning and or night routine and what helps you bounce back if you ever fall off a track? My morning routine is, this is if I ever get up early enough because I very much struggle to hear my alarm. Um, wake up, do Pilates, go home, have a shower, like do my full makeup, like not rushed, do my hair, um, have, you know, I like to have a light breakfast, so like maybe some granola and some milk, um, my coffee, and then listen, get in like one episode of my favorite podcast, which is Megan Markle's podcast at the moment. Oh, I my love that. <laughs> get in at least one episode in the morning because mm-hmm. I love to start my day off with people who just like think the same, like just like I agree with mm-hmm. and who um, inspire me to like have a good day. Yeah. And my night routine involves many serums, Mm -hmm. involves a long, long, warm shower. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to, you know, if it's a hair washing day, I like to fully get in my hair, do a hair mask, do a face mask, scrub my body, like do the full thing, watch a movie while I'm waiting for it all to sink in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you get in bed with your tea and you feel so clean. Yes like my favorite night routine yeah that sounds so lovely it's just like oh my god beautiful and the thing that puts me back on track which is actually good because recently I did have about a month and a half but I was off track Mm -hmm. I was like so off track it wasn't even funny I was like I was questioning whether I should quit cooking I was like I don't know what I'm doing um And I think is what got me back on track during that situation was the best advice I've ever gotten is like, just like be sad. Yeah. Just like be off track. Like when people get off track and get depressed about it and get anxious about it, it's like we do things to try and fix it. Mm -hmm. Like, like, oh my God, I've got to go to the gym to get rid of the anxious energy or I feel so depressed. Like I've got to go do something. And that's all great. Mm -hmm. But like, just like, let yourself be sad. Yeah. And lay in bed for the day. Yeah. And let yourself be confused. Mm-hmm. And let the answers kind of come organically. Yes. And it's really hard to do. But I think, you know, it's important that, you know, if you're feeling depressed or, you know, like you've run out of steam, you kind of have to rest. Yeah. No, that's a big call. Let it happen. Absolutely. And I feel, I feel like that really applies to me right now because I think in transitioning out of school, taking the break during the summer, but then transitioning into work and being excited, but then also with there being so many new things and just being so tired after school I just don't think that the summer break 
was enough. It's like, I just need longer to process yeah. everything and that our, you know, our body remembers and that we're still sort of holding on to all of that weight, that yeah. like metaphorical weight. And that if it's heavy, you can just rest and you don't need to, yeah, rush to a billion things to get it off your chest it feels like it feels like this thing that I can't quite like get off if that makes any sense and that it's okay to just let it be heavy for a while and that the change and the shifts will come organically when we are rested and when our cup is full exactly and I think as well trying to throw band-aids onto a situation yes also just pushes it down and it's like okay well then like later on it's just gonna come back up yes and I feel like by you just being like you know okay I don't feel great at the moment I'm having a really bad time Mm -hmm. you know I'm not doing things right Mm -hmm. I am angry all the time I am sad all the time Mm -hmm. I'm not the best version of myself yes but like who is all the time right like you know give yourself a break yeah and just be like all right well looks like I'm just not gonna be the best version of myself a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> and just and making peace with that and accepting yeah. that and that is such a big message I'd love yeah. to know if there was anything else that you'd like to share anything that you felt like we didn't quite get to unpack or you had any other additional thoughts on it um I think not you know what I think we just had a pretty great conversation (laughs) I think that was awesome I think um in terms of like the mental health aspect it's not just because you're a chef you know not, not again not all chefs experience bad mental health um you can experience bad mental health if you're in any, you know, anywhere in life at any point, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just like a really important thing to know that it just absolutely in every situation I've ever experienced, mm-hmm. it does get better. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't get better straight away. Yeah. Or anywhere near straight away. Yeah. Like, you could be three months into a depressive episode, you know, like I was, I was so depressed for about, you know, two, three months. And I was like, this is not going to end. Like, like I need to do something about it because it's not going to end. Yeah. But I was just like, and now I'm on the other side mm. and it's just kind of like, I understand why it happened and what I need to do to avoid it in the future but if I can't avoid it then you just sit with it yeah I think sitting with things is the message to take away from this absolutely I love that well how can the folks listening best continue learning from you and or reach you um you can reach me on Instagram that is the best form of communication I think um because you know I am on Instagram 100% of the time um and my Instagram name is s-c-h-i-l-i-r-o-s-1 perfect and I will link that in the show notes thank you so so much for joining me and helping me make some really strong connections between your experience as a chef and just all through your experiences with Michelin star kitchens and all the incredible places that you've been at with the STEM world that I'm in and the academia world that I just got out of. And I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation and to give people who are listening an opportunity to sort of see the similarities and differences between these spaces and to realize that when you're the first or only in an industry it doesn't 
sometimes matter what industry it is, it still feels the same. And that there's so much learning that we can have by sharing these stories across industries as well, across cultures. And yeah, I'm just so grateful to be able to share your story here. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. I love talking to you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening to the Leadership Equity and Wellness Pod by Ricky Roy. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave me a review and follow me at Ricky Roy on Instagram and at Ricky underscore Roy on TikTok. Thank you so much for spending this time growing with me. Until next time, take care of yourself.